I'm glad this morning to be back into the book of Romans. Invite you to open your Bible there, Romans 12, and we'll start this morning at verse 9. A waitress greeted us with a pleasant smile, identifying herself as our server, as they all seem to do these days. After she had written down the selections of the four people sitting at our table, we settled into a good conversation, fully expecting a good restaurant experience that evening. She returned with our meals. She described the first one in her hands and asked who had ordered it. Well, in fact, it didn't quite match up with uh, anything any of us had ordered. Uh, and, and then one said, well, it, it's close, uh, except I asked for salmon instead of chicken. Oh, okay. Well, she put the plate there anyway and said, I'll bring salmon in a little while. Uh, the next one corresponded uh, well, but the next two also had significant errors. After her second attempt, second attempt to bring the right food to the table, we all just agreed among ourselves, let's just accept it as it is. Uh, And so we went on with our meal. Uh, But the worst thing was that when she uh, ultimately brought the bill, she had charged us for the correction of one of her errors. Now, she had looked at every appearance of being both uh, experienced and competent. But it was clear that evening that either her head or her heart was not in her work. It was difficult to tell which one it was. And we left feeling that we had not quite gotten our money's worth. Is it possible that the Lord ever feels that way about us? Well, what money's worth? Paul has spent 11 chapters outlining for us all that Christ has done, which our choir this morning summarized so well. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. How can we summarize what we owe to God? And how far short do we fall? You see, our commitment to the Lord easily slips into a mere mechanical routine. We do what we ought to do. But so often, uh, the heart or the head is not really in the endeavor. Prayer can become sporadic. Bible reading can become stagnant. Worship can be just a, a, a mindless 
uh, endeavor. Participation in ministry can become reluctant. I'll do it, but I think I'm ready for a break. Uh, Ministry has gotten burdensome. What can we do to escape or perhaps avoid such half-hearted, mediocre standards of Christian living that we all have to admit uh, becomes such an easy thing for us to do? Well, in Romans 12, in our passage today, Paul again alludes to the salvation that Christ has provided. This is actually a very intriguing passage, even in its structure. It seems to have 13 disconnected uh, exhortations, uh, disconnected from the immediate context, and, and, and even in, in large part, disconnected from each other. It's like Paul said, I've got all these leftover things I need to say. I'm just going to list them out. And there it is. But no particular order or presentation here. Of course, that wouldn't be like Paul. Uh, This challenges interpreters. In fact, even look at the heading we have from uh, our our, uh, English Standard Version translators. They they inserted here uh, to help us out, know what to expect. Marks of the true Christian. Well, how generic can you be? Are these just a a general collection of things we ought to do? Again, I don't think so. I think there is a connection to the context. Paul is still operating. He, He doesn't tell us there's any direct link with the previous few verses, but... Keep in mind the significance of chapter 12. It's all built on the first 11 chapters. It's all built on what Jesus has paid, what he's accomplished. And now he's into the what we owe part. And that's the rest of these chapters. And so there's where Paul is settled. How can we... How can we summarize what we owe? Not just marks of the true Christian. How about something like devotion to the Lord? There's a way of expressing what we owe to him. For all he's done, I devote myself to you, Lord. And I devote myself to you every day. And my goal then becomes reflecting that devotion in how I live all day long. Let me say that another way. Because Christ has redeemed your soul, your life must reflect daily devotion to him. Then Paul has three key aspects of that devotion. 
three key admonitions that summarize all that, the, that this passage has to say. He begins in verses 9 and 10, in your devotion to God, your daily devotion to Him, you must love the Lord. Not just by saying so, Lord, I love you. But you must love the Lord and the way you live. That has to make a difference. That's what you owe. You must love the Lord. Uh, The word love Paul uses in verse 9 is the one that indicates a call for decision. You decide to do this. By God's grace, you can do this. A decision to focus on an object and to discern how to respond to that object. God here is the object. Love the Lord. What could you do to express love to him? Well, the next two statements in verse 9 tell us what to do. How can you do that? Two things. Two things, one negative and one positive, and both correspond to each other. The first is, love God by doing what he has said. God has issued some commands in his word, hasn't he? He expects us to be doing it, to be obeying his commands. In fact, Christ himself confirms that if you love God, you'll do what? You obey his commandments. Of course you will. To proclaim love for God and yet disregard what he expects? There's no real love there at all. And so express your love to God by doing what he has said. And that's where we get to both the negative and the positive aspect of this. God has prohibited some things. So reject all that he forbids. Everything God says is wrong, you determine. I'm not going to do that. In fact, Paul uses a strong word. He says, abhor what is evil. Detest it. Be disgusted by sin. But here the point is not so much be disgusted by the sin that other people are doing. Abhor what we hear people doing in the news. Now, the real point here is abhor the sin that you find attractive. See, there is the problem with sin. If all sin appeared to us as abhorrent, we wouldn't have much temptation going on but it's because it seems attractive. But identify what God forbids, even if it seems attractive to you, and reject that. Ask God for grace to be disgusted by that. And then the corollary to that, to finish verse 9, hold fast 
to what is good. That would be everything that God says should characterize your life. Every aspect of Christian living would express to God, he sees you striving to put those into practice in your life. What that says to God is, that one loves me. Love God by doing what he says. Now, I'm certain that there are many among us for whom, say, the sin of pornography proves to be very attractive. And you might struggle. You might face a temptation to, uh, to, to engage in pornography this week. Let's face it, guys. The temptation is coming our way again. What can you do about that? Give in as being too powerful? Or ask for God's grace to instead of being attracted, to be disgusted. To think through what that is doing to others, the women that it exploits, the, uh, the, the, the personnel that have to be involved in publication of it, the corruption of the whole thing. God, help me to be disgusted with sin. Or maybe there's some other sin that, that, will, uh, that, that is already attractive to you. You need God's help with that. He says the key is to abhor it. Now, God's commanded us to do a lot of positive things, but you know what lies right there at the heart of it all? We have very little hope of abhorring what God forbids if you're not daily spending time in his word. If you aren't daily seeking earnestly his grace in prayer. You see, prayer and Bible reading can't become sporadic in the heart and in the life of someone who is striving to love the Lord have to be doing those. Otherwise, there is no hope for loving God by doing what he has said. Persevere in that Bible reading. Persevere in prayer. They're essential. Verse 10 is still on the subject of loving God. But now it turns to the second commandment, according to Christ. The first one, he says, is love the Lord with all your heart. But the second one, he says, is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how Paul says it in verse 10. And his focus here is now on brotherly affection. It's It's a a, a love based on relationship. Love one another with brotherly affection. 
outdo one another in showing honor. Love God by doing what he said, and the next important thing he has said to do is love one another. The reciprocal nature of one another here means just love everybody who lives because you don't have a relationship. There can't be the reciprocal. He's clearly got in mind here within a church family, within a local church. Now, we can love everybody, and loving your neighbor means anybody nearby. That means even where you live and where you work. But here the focus is on that reciprocal. You can love an unsaved neighbor, but while that neighbor is unsaved, you don't have very high expectation you're ever going to get love back in return. Among God's people, we do have that ex- God has that expectation. So first of all, appreciate who they are. Uh, as verse 10 says, love one another with this brotherly affection. Who are they then? They're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's reality. We often refer to ourselves as a church family. Right, well, that's not kind of a clever gimmick to get us to kind of uh, feel warm and fuzzy about each other. That's what God says we are. There's a genuine bond of relationship here. And it has an expectation that you actually love the others in the church family. Valued family members. These are lasting connections. Connections that we need to nurture. That God commands us to nurture. Appreciate who they are as those valued family members. But the rest of verse 10 turns us in a little, no, a little different practical direction. Outdo one another in showing honor. Uh, there is to be some competition here among us. But it's a, it's a competition that the world knows nothing about. It's not a competition to get more for me, to receive honor, it's a combination of, a competition of who can give the most honor to the other person. Outdo one another. There, there is to be some real interest in engaging here in appreciating what they do. Now, this is actually a, a, a build-off of what Paul said in the previous paragraph as he's talking there about how we are to function together and we need the input of each other and God has entrusted to each one their own gifts that they then need to utilize that strengthens all of us So that God has placed you in the midst of a church family means that all these family members are engaged in edifying work and you are among the beneficiaries. 
Now, because we all have differing gifts, that's going to happen in different ways. But appreciate the ways in which those around you are contributing to the good of the whole. And don't just appreciate them. Say so. Hey, I, I am not too, I'm not too great at the say-so myself. Uh, I, 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 get, uh, I have a lot of appreciation for other people, but I don't often express it. And uh, this is just a point where you can feel sorry for my wife, uh, for whom I have the enormous appreciation and still working on uh, a, a commensurate expression of it. I, even this week, I, I, I met with Pastor Chris and Pastor Brian. Uh, I haven't met for a couple of weeks. We met on Thursday this week. We usually meet on Wednesday. Thursday worked out better for all of us. And uh, after that meeting, I thought, you know, I don't think I ever said anything about how much I appreciate what they did the last two weeks. So I decided I'm going to say it on Sunday in front of everybody, which I've already done, right? From my heart. Uh, I, I can't tell you how much it means to me to be gone for two weeks, and I pray for our church. I pray for them every day while I'm gone, but to not have to worry about it. That's in large part because of the capable hands that our church family is in when I'm gone. And the capable hands that help support me when I'm here. Appreciate the work that others do that contribute to the good of the whole. Because there's a relationship here. A man by the name of Raymond Turner works in an office at Cook Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, Texas. One day he expressed to his wife an interest in finding out more about his family background because there were just a lot of vagaries there uh, given an, an, uh, how, uh, parts of his uh, upbringing. So his wife bought him a DNA test kit. Let's see what that can discern. Well, a little research found out that he had a sister he didn't even know about. Uh, a little more uh, checking, and he found out her name. He found out where she lives. Now, later he learned that this woman, her name is Christina, Later, he found out that she had walked by his office, and he's got a window there leading into the hallway in the hospital. She walked by his hospital often during a seven-year period as she brought her son for medical treatments. They had seen each other many, many times over that period, but had simply lost each other as mere strangers amid so many others. 
until now they find out they are brother and sister. Last year, in an event organized by and broadcast by a national news organization, they met for the very first time. Was it a little awkward? Yeah, just a bit. But you know what it looked like? It looked like hugs that were long and bonds that were real. They immediately made their plans to get to know each other better and to deepen their relationship. Ah, plans to get to know each other better and deepen their relationship. Okay, look around. Look across. Especially if you're used to sitting in about the same vicinity. We don't have any reserved seats around here. But if you're sitting in the same vicinity and there are other people also sit in the same vicinity, well, even among them, are there some that you have to admit you don't really know very well? You might not even know their names. But they're family members. There's a bond there that's real. And according to this verse, there is an obligation there. An obligation to get to know them and deepen that relationship. Love God by loving those he has saved. I would urge you to identify others that you don't know and embrace a plan to change that. You can do that. God can help you. Now, Scripture confirms even elsewhere that love is, in fact, the greatest command. But there is something else here that would express your, love, your, your devotion to God that is equally necessary. Scripture confirms this one, too. In verse 11, you must serve the Lord. Paul uses a rhetorical device in verse 11. He tells us, uh, let's just look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Okay, now Paul is embarking on a new topic here, a new facet of devotion to God. That kind of leaves us with a question, doesn't it? Be not slothful in zeal. Zeal for what? What are we doing here, Paul? But he holds off the answer a little bit longer as he says it in a little different way. Be fervent in spirit. Come on, Paul, to do what? Then he says it. Serving the Lord. You see that device? He's reserved the topic of verse 11 until the end. 
There aren't three things to do in verse 11. There's one. Serve the Lord. But there are two ways of doing it. Two manners of proceeding in this, in serving the Lord. And these two manners indicate the way that we find most challenging. Okay, if if you have gotten to the point where, yes, I need to serve the Lord, but... All right, you might be doing it, but uh, like that waitress, it might not be with your whole heart. Be not slothful in zeal in your service for God. Be fervent. In spirit. Interpreters puzzle over where, whether that word spirit should have a capital S or the lowercase as our translation has it. Many really good interpreters think that Paul has deliberately left this one vague. Because it's not possible to be fervent in your human spirit in serving God apart from the grace that the Holy Spirit provides. You've got to have both. The Holy Spirit energizing your spirit and enabling you to be fervent, enabling you to to, uh, serve God with your very best effort. He deserves nothing less than that. No laziness allowed. Lagging behind, hesitancy, all of that's included in, in that word slothful. None of that is, is appropriate when you're talking about serving God. So replace negligence, I don't think I'll serve God today or tomorrow. Replace negligence with an eagerness. I want to serve him. I want to do so. Give him my best ever. Replace carelessness. Service for God. Okay, but however it turns out, it's good enough. Now, replace carelessness with diligence. We have to admit, our human tendency is to get away with as little as possible. But when that's in service to God, what an affront to what he actually deserves. The middle part indicates to serve God with your whole heart. A genuine expression of your gratitude for all he's done through Christ. So fulfill your role with energy. My role? What's my role? Well, that's what he described back uh, in verses 7 and 8 of this chapter. Uh, He gave some samples, but everybody has an assignment. An assignment that enables you to contribute to the good of the whole. Pursue that role with energy. Uh, in, in verse 11, this fervent 
in spirit. The word fervent uh, elsewhere describes something that's been set on fire or something that is boiling over. There's the kind of fervency, the kind of energy uh, that God is looking for. But the point here is direct your goal toward ministry. God, what would you have me to do? Oh, all right. I'm going to accomplish that by your grace. And I'm going to do so with my whole heart. Recently, uh, one member, unable to be here due to physical weakness over an extended, a long period of time, yet reminded me that she prays for me and the other pastors and all of our people daily. She prays. The reality is she can't do much else. And the reality is our attitude toward that is, well, at least you can pray. But as I thought about that after that conversation, it became a little clearer to me that isn't it just like our God that when somebody is so weak, they can do so little, they can still utilize the most powerful tool that God has made available to any of us. If all you can do is pray, doesn't mean you've been reduced to next to nothing. It means you have been enabled to focus on the one thing that makes the greatest difference. What value? Be fervent in your spirit. Okay, that's the requirement for every choir member. That's the requirement for every member of a cleaning crew. Right, there are no exceptions here. There's nothing beneath the bar of God's expectation. If your role is in a Sunday school classroom or in the nursery, or maybe your role isn't a particular place of service. But God has equipped you to be an encouragement to others in a variety of ways. Serve the Lord with your best effort and do it with your whole heart. Now even service for God with a whole heart will falter and fail without one more essential aspect of devotion. And that we can summarize in verses 12 and 13 with the words, you must trust the Lord. Why trust him as a part of devotion to him? Because devotion to him is challenging. And there are times that we feel like, I I just can't do that. Uh, That that comes up in verse 12 in one way. Uh, I, I I can't accomplish God's plan for me, his expectation for me. Well, trust God's grace to help you. Trust his grace to help you with the challenges you're facing. 
He'll enable you just as he's promised. So we have three aspects of that in verse 12. First, Paul says, rejoice in hope. If you've got some pretty dismal circumstances you're looking at right now, reorient your attitude toward that and realize that yet I have full expectation that God is going to make this into good. Even as we sang about uh, just a few minutes ago. Rejoice in hope. Maintain your confidence in God's plan. Yes, it includes its challenging circumstances where, humanly speaking, you can't see a way out. But God guarantees his plan is going to bring you through. That's a basis for confidence. But it's also a basis for rejoicing. Oh, yeah, things are tough. But I rejoice that God is going to help me through this. That's trusting God's grace. Verse 12 continues, be patient in tribulation. Well, that's calling it what it is. Tribulation, yeah, that's my life. Affliction. Pressure. Characterizes all of us. What we're facing this week. But bear up under it, Paul says. Don't strive to cast that pressure off. That's God's design for you right now. We don't know for how long, but while it's his plan for you, bear up under it. That's the word patience. You facing some trials? Bear up under. How? By the grace God gives. Trust God's grace to help you. Finally, verse 12, be constant in prayer. Why? Because you need God's help. So ask for it. Be constant in your expression of dependence on God's grace. And that can help fortify you to trust him to provide it. You can't take that out of this equation. God's help is not automatic. But it is guaranteed. Ask him for it. Be constant in prayer. Of course, verse 11 was all about serving God, but I don't know that I can. Well, trust God's grace to use you. You got needs? Yes. Yes, I do. Well, look around. Other people have needs as well. Paul says there are two things to do to meet those needs. First one, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Use your means, what God has entrusted to you, use your means for ministry. Oh, I don't have much. That's why you have to trust him. 
trust God's grace to use you with what you've got. Use your means for ministry. That's not just talking about money, although it definitely includes that. You see somebody who, who doesn't have enough. Think, well, I'm just barely making it. But in fact, you could help out, maybe even just a little. So participate in that. But this extends far beyond just financial contribution, because there are all kinds of needs. Use your means, your time your energy, your insight, what God's taught you recently to share with someone else. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's important that that word and is in there because it connects these two. One of the ways to meet the needs of others is to use your home for ministry. Now, this passage just happens to occur on the Sunday that we have home fellowships coming up uh, this afternoon and this evening. And everybody was invited to uh, sign up to be a part of this We praise God. We we had more people volunteer to use their home to serve as a host. We had more volunteer than we needed. That's not unusual. That actually works out that way every time. Every time. How often do we do this? Uh, Usually about twice a year. And every time we have people for whom we have to say, I'm sorry, we just don't uh, need you today. So, should those people think, oh, whew, got off the hook this time. I'll be good till next year. No, the, the attitude here that Paul is conveying, he says, seek. Seek something here. Seek to show hospitality. Oh, I didn't get to do it that time. But you know what? You don't have to wait until next year. You seek your own way to use your home in ministry. In fact, let's combine this with verse 11 and say, you see some people you don't know very well? Invite them over for dessert. Hey, it doesn't cost very much to make a dessert pot of coffee. I got to clean, though. Yeah, That might be a good idea anyway. (laughs) Ah, But I get nervous. I had to talk to somebody new. Trust God's grace to help you. Nobody's asking you to do this in your own strength. You know what just happened? All our excuses just went out the window. There aren't any good excuses. I had a man one time say, well, I tried. Oh, okay, tell me about it. Well, I invited a family to come to our house, and they couldn't come. So why? Why why didn't they come? 
He said that they were already busy that night. I said, well, that's legitimate. Yeah, but I just don't think that's for me. What does God think? He thinks if he gave you a home, it's not just so that you stay dry when it rains. He gave you a home to use for ministry. It's going to be real hard to wiggle out of that. If you're feeling any pressure right now, don't blame me. Hey, God said this. And he said, you have a responsibility for initiative. Seek to show hospitality. Love the Lord. Serve the Lord. Trust the Lord. Is God asking too much? Well, we're talking about the one who has saved your soul. It's not possible for him to ask too much. Ironically, to devote yourself to God requires his help. Assessing your devotion to God, you might find it's necessary to ask for some forgiveness. There have been some half-heartedness here. There's been some negligence, some mindlessness. By God's grace, that can change. You'll ask him to help you. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we pray that you would forgive us for so easily slipping into that uh, half-hearted mediocrity that is so unworthy of all that you've done for us. Father, we would devote ourselves to you. We ask for your help to show it by a genuine love, by an eager service, And by daily trust, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.